Welcome to Steam Powered, where I have conversations with women in Steam to learn a little bit about what they do and who they are. I'm your host, Michelle Ong. My guest today is Dr. Erin McDonald, astrophysicist, writer, producer, and science advisor. Erin is a one-woman STEM career panel and currently the science advisor for the Star Trek franchise. Join us as we speak about Erin's journey through academia, industry, and entertainment, learning to celebrate little wins, and Erin's love of teaching and sharing science to inspire the next generation. So good morning, Erin. Thank you for joining me on Steam Power today. It is wonderful speaking with you about your journey and wow, what a ride. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, I'm really happy to be here and share, like you said, my very unique journey. (laughs) Excellent. So we'll start at the beginning. What drew you to astrophysics? You know, I actually got into astrophysics primarily because of um, television and film. So I... uh, watched the X-Files growing up and Dana Scully was someone who I just wanted to be. I thought she was the coolest person in the whole world. And um, I also at the same time, Contact came out. And so that was uh, really important for me, just seeing Dr. Ellie Arroway, you know, as a woman astronomer. And uh, both of those, you know, really motivated me to get into astronomy. And I didn't necessarily go into it with the intention of like doing it as a career. Um, but I just was interested in studying space and doing that at university. That's amazing. Yeah, I was going to ask you, you know, where did you see yourself taking astrophysics? Because it's it's not a light subject to take up. <laughs> no, it's not. And, you know, I really just loved the idea that I could go to university for four years and study space. And then when I was doing it, I had the opportunity to do research and I really enjoyed that. And so I decided to go on to graduate school, postgraduate school. And I went and did a PhD at the University of Glasgow. And um, but again, I still didn't really have a plan after that. that <laughs> Probably not the most yeah. responsible thing in the whole world. But, you know, I, um, I, I still just really, really enjoyed it. And, you know, I figured it couldn't hurt. Right. Like you said, it's not it's <laughs> a light subject, but. Um, having a PhD in astrophysics, I figured when I did figure out what I wanted to get into, then it, yeah, it would still do me yeah. favors and it has. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely. So did academia, like pursuing further stuff in academia appeal to you at all? Um, you know, I looked at it and when I was about halfway through my PhD, I started seriously thinking about what my career would look like as a researcher, obviously. And as a postgraduate student, I'm working very closely with postdoctoral students, people at all different ages and stages of their careers. And so I could really see kind of what that career path looked like. And it looked rough. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a hard <laughs> life. Um, for for those who might not be familiar, you know, doing a postdoctoral research, typically, at least in my field, it was sort of one to three year contracts at different universities for a good sort of eight to 10 years after your PhD. So you're moving a lot, you know, your income has not gone up that much because now you're being taxed (laughs) because you're not on a student income. And, um, and it's just kind of a really mobile life. And so I was starting to think that maybe that wasn't for me. And, uh, but I had a really good supervisor who gave me the advice of like, look, in the middle of your PhD, like your brain is not 
thinking like you're so overwhelmed you know and it's like especially when you're like near the end it's really really hard to make a rational decision about what you want to do and so you know he recommended to just go and do a postdoctoral job and then decide because and it was good advice and I'm glad I did it because he said it's going to be much harder if you leave after your PhD and then try to get a postdoc position Rather than just get a postdoc position, get the distance from the thesis, and then decide what you want to do. So, you know, turns out that really wasn't quite what you wanted to do afterwards. <laughs> no, it wasn't. I mean, I did enjoy my postdoctoral research, but it, uh, but it's a tough life. And, uh, you know, not having gone into it with the goal of becoming a professor, I just didn't have that motivation to really push and deal with that lifestyle for as long as I would need to. I just wasn't motivated to do it and um, figured that I could find some other options out there. So how did you, you know, find getting into industry then? Because, you know, obviously if you're not doing academia, you go into industry. So how did that journey take you? Yeah, I, um, I actually, I really enjoyed working in industry. I, um, it was difficult. It was a difficult transition. I was doing adjunct professorships for a while. Um, those didn't quite pay the bills. So I was working at uh, a museum as well, doing public outreach, mm -hmm. uh, which I also really enjoyed. And um, But again, it was just financially not super viable. And so I, um, yeah, I got a job working as an aerospace engineer. I had sent my resume to a bunch of companies, but this is me being in academia, right? So I have like an academic CV. Yeah. I don't know how to write a real resume. I don't know the language to really apply. And thankfully, you know, I had a, a woman at this company that I had sent my resume to. She read it and she she understood what my skill set was and realized that I was yeah. capable of doing that work. And now, you know, once I got into the industry, I realized that a lot of what I was doing, especially managing big data sets, working on these large scale projects, it's a lot of systems engineering. And that's kind of what I ended yeah. up you know, working in for a number of years was working as a systems engineer. And it really conceptually was not that much different from the research side of things. And, uh, and I really enjoyed it. Um, I think one of the things that benefited me in that career path was a lot of the science communication that I had done and a lot of the teaching because sort of as a as a very technical, you know, I'm coming in with a PhD and that's not necessarily a field where a lot of people have PhDs. And so, yeah, um, I was I was definitely kind of on deck for a lot of technical work. And then being the person who also was able to explain the technical stuff to the different audiences, because there it might be like a captain or a major or a government official who doesn't have a technical background but is still responsible for the project that science communication really benefited me there absolutely because you know a lot of the work that you do do in that area is you know defense contracts and military and stuff like that so you do need to be able to communicate to all of these different levels it's yeah it's just part of the part of the course <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly and and not you know there's that intersection of trying to find that skill set I think it's finding highly technical people who are also able to explain to a variety of audiences in a very short manner. You know, some of these meetings you get are yep. five to 10 minutes long. So you just have to get to the nuts and bolts, read your audience to see if you've lost them <laughs> and then, you know, keep, keep going. 
exactly. And it, it is one of those things where uh, people find that if you become highly academic, you start forgetting how to communicate to non-academics. And, yes. you know, it's all the more reason why now we're seeing so much importance being put on science communication and accessibility to being able to communicate all these very technical things to a whole range of people. Yeah, it's, it is it is difficult and you do get lost in it. And I mean, I really enjoyed teaching introductory classes, but I think the most of my skill set actually came from working at that museum because it was all day, every day, just answering questions from the public. And it could be retired yeah. aerospace engineers or a five-year-old who's just learned about black holes or, you know, a, <laughs> a high school student who has to do a project on Mars. You just start to be able to build your skill set, learn how to say, I don't know, let's look it up. Yeah. And and then again, just kind of judge your audience because sometimes that five-year-old who's just learned about black holes knows a lot about black holes. So you don't want to make that <laughs> assumption either. Absolutely. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, you really don't know how deep of dive they've taken. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So with the science communication aspect and the museums, you also started doing talks and panels at conventions. So, you know, what moved you into the con circuit? <laughs> yeah, I I love, I mean, I'm a big sci-fi fan nerd anyway. And so yeah. uh, I had gone to a convention called Dragon Con, which is in Atlanta every year. And one of the unique things about Dragon Con is it has a huge number of tracks. So these are very subject focused that they program the whole weekend. And it runs the gamut from um, like voiceover work to anime to costuming to fantasy literature and all, everything. But one of the things they do is they also have a space track and they have a science track. And so after my first year at Dragon Con, I was like, I could probably give a space talk. I was still in academia at the time. <laughs> and so I applied, you know, and the next year I came and I talked about gravitational waves and I talked about gamma ray bursts, which were my, you know, that's what I was doing research in. And it's a very technical talk. The space track is like a really kind of almost technical conference, which is pretty cool. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, but but me being me, like I was like, well, I also want to talk about Star Trek and I want to talk about video games. I want to do all that fun of stuff too. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I started, you know, as the years went on, like I was putting talks together that was like the physics behind the video game series Mass Effect or the physics behind Star Trek or even just the science of artificial gravity and science fiction. And again, like this is sort of, overlapping with me leaving academia so I'm also teaching introductory courses at the same time and I'm starting mm -hmm. to see the power of using science fiction to teach science topics because it's a reference point and I think that's what so many students struggle with when it comes to science is that they don't have like a tangible reference point that they you know especially when yeah. we're talking about complex topics like planets and stars that we can't see and get our hands on but being able to be like, okay, so, you know, in like Star Wars, like the binary star system and people are like, oh yeah, I get that. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so I started incorporating more science fiction into my teaching and then, you know, actually going to these sci-fi conventions to teach. And then certainly when I got into the aerospace world, I um, really missed teaching. I just didn't have the time for it, but I would make, you know, I would go to these conventions and by then I'd kind of nailed down a couple of topics and they were just really popular. You know, the sci-fi fans really liked the opportunity to learn some science, to have an astrophysicist there that they could ask questions of. 
And I, yeah, I continue to do it. I'm still doing it. And I really enjoy it as a kind of a unique science public outreach venue. <laughs> it's very specific, but it's exactly what you need to do. Because I, I've spoken to a mathematician and an engineer who says, you know, you need to explain things to people in a context that they can relate to. So when you talk about things like trajectory and arcs and, you know, mathematics, you can say, okay, well, you've got a plastic spoon, right? So when you put something on there and you bend it back, that's maths. And so you can you show people things the way that they work in ways that they can approach. And, you know, I've spoken to, you know, forensic scientists who say, you know, she, she actually speaks in court. And she says, right, so you understand CSI, right? Well, this is what happened at CSI, and this is how it's different to how we do it in real nice. life. And, you know, so she uses, you know, real examples juxtaposed with the stuff that we see in popular culture. And it's the exact thing, like with science fiction, because it's so accessible, but a lot of it seems so fantastical. And you go, well, how does that work? Is that real? Can I suspend disbelief? And you can explain the science around whether you need to suspend disbelief. And that's amazing. Right. And and I think it's you don't want to discount the areas either where it's wrong, where there is no science. Behind <laughs> exactly. It, because you can explain why. Right. It's still a teaching moment. You can yeah. still say, like, this is why this doesn't quite work. Like, we wouldn't really be able yeah. to do that. But here's some science behind it. And and then here's some examples of maybe where they've taken a different approach. So, yeah, it's um it's a really, really fun venue to be able to connect with the public. Um, yeah. I, I recommend that. <laughs> Uh, yes, if only we had cons like that. Like we've got cons like that here, but we don't have them with, you know, the range of tracks and stuff like that that you get in some of the other larger cons. And yeah, yeah. so yeah. <laughs> they'll grow, they'll yeah, grow. So, oh, if only. <laughs> Might have to travel interstate for that. We don't get a lot of yeah, them right. in Western Australia where I am. Uh, we only oh, get a couple right. and they tend to be a bit smaller because we're so remote. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah so you know I can see kind of where you're heading with your career journey going from you know academic industry talking at cons getting to become a science advisor <laughs> like how does one do that <laughs> yeah I I had heard of these science advisors on the convention circuit because people who had gone to <laughs> I know like they would <laughs> talk about their careers and I was like oh my god gosh, like someone can do that. That's like, because too, taking kind of a step back, I always was fascinated with film. I mean, I really thought about doing it at university and I would watch behind, I still watch behind the scenes, making of movies, all of that stuff obsessively. Yeah. And so I always had that kind of in the back of my mind, but no, like I said, I was really fascinated with astronomy and astrophysics. And I was like, well, I'll figure out my career down <laughs> later. I'll figure that out. <laughs> and uh, but then when I found out that science advising was a thing that it just put that bug in my brain. The problem is, is that it's not really a straightforward path to go do that job. It's not one mm -hmm. where, uh, you know, they put out a job ad for it. You kind of have to get to know people and network and the entertainment industry is is just filled with networking. You know, there's an old adage that every job is just an audition for your next job. And so you're yeah. constantly building your network and getting to know people. And so from doing all these conventions, I was meeting a lot of creatives, um, writers, actors, directors, all of these people. And I moved out to Los Angeles, still working as an aerospace engineer, but I had a point in my life where I was like, I'm just going to move to LA. I've always wanted to. I want to be in the film industry. So let's move to LA. And uh, yeah. so I started working out of LA Air Force Base, still doing my aerospace career. But 
Um, once people discovered that I was now in L.A., that's kind of when it started, where people would be like, oh, well, my friend's working on this film or we're doing this TV show. You guys should connect. I'm sure they'd love to talk to you. And just started to build my network from there. And then with uh, specifically Star Trek, so I'm starting to do little jobs here and there as a science advisor and starting to get my feet wet and like, what do scripts look like? You know, what's the production process? And how do I, you know, figure this out as I go? And I, I'm finding yeah. my way, but it was really a friend, you know, mutual friend introduced me to someone who worked for CBS and they had heard of my science talks, you know, the, at these conventions. And so they put me in touch with the people who ran the official licensed Star Trek events. And they said, you know, we'd, we'd be interested in having you give your physics of Star Trek talk at our licensed, you know, <laughs> convention. And I was like, okay. And uh, so I did that. And again, I mean, it's even to me, it's surprising. And I've been doing this for like a decade now. <laughs> It is shocking how many people want to come see these talks. I mean, it is. Yeah. These rooms fill up and it's really amazing to see. And, you know, in the Star Trek people, you know, they saw that. So they started inviting me to more events. And then as I was sort of building that fan facing side, um, all of these new Star Trek shows start getting made. And uh, for season three of Star Trek Discovery, they got a new showrunner, Michelle Paradise. She uh, wanted to get a science advisor and she, um, you know, so people had kind of known about me and my name got thrown around a couple other people's too, but her and I talked and, you know, for me, my philosophy with science advising is to really yes and the process. That old adage yeah. of improv, you know, is that you want to be that positive, <laughs> keep the story going, keep that flow going, um, especially when you're working in a creative, high pressure creative environment like that. And so it, so I was able to kind of build that relationship and build that rapport and that's continued to grow over the seasons. And then they were starting to get all these other shows going. And so they decided to bring me on just on retainer for the Star Trek franchise um, to help coordinate all the technical language, how we're talking about warp, how we're talking about transporters and all of those other things. And so... I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a dream job and I'm still continuing to do it, even working on different films and, and working on the odd project here and there in addition to Star Trek. Um, but it, it's a lot. It can be a lot. <laughs> my, um, my days typically, a lot of it's very independent. You know, I'm not totally engaged all the time on some of the shows. I am mm -hmm. sitting in the writer's room regularly, not like every day, but once a week. And then we can bounce ideas around or they can ask me questions. Um, but a lot of it is, you know, I read scripts. It's a lot of reading. It's a lot of reading. <laughs> you know, every every hour long TV show is like 50 to 60 pages long and they get revised yeah. and things get updated. And so I just spot check, you know, I read all of those scripts. I spot check all the corrections. Um, I work a little bit in post-production as well. So as people are doing the graphics, on-screen graphics for the film, making sure, you know, maybe a black hole, you know, and a brown dwarf look the way that they're supposed to and uh, that the map of the galaxy makes sense and all the data that they're seeing on screen makes sense, like when they planetary scans and all of that. Um, and then sometimes, you know, they do bring me in for the, like I said, kind of the earlier stuff with, uh, stories yep. where they want to do um, they want to build the story and make it science based 
Um, and then kind of the final aspect that I get to do, which is really an honor and I love doing, is it's not so much getting the science right, but providing uh, a perspective from a scientist. And so, you know, like Star Trek Discovery is really science focused. And I think in season four, they're mm -hmm. trying to kind of solve this mystery. And a lot of what I was doing was, yeah, building the science behind it, but also being like, well, how would scientists approach this? What would their questions be? What kind of data would they be looking for? And um, and then conversely as well with like a kid's show like Star Trek Prodigy, um, coming at it from a, an education perspective, trying to teach science to that demographic, that sort of eight to 14 year olds and make them inspired to become scientists. So it's really, it's a, it's a bunch of different stuff, but it's really fun. Yeah, I can imagine. And just being able to communicate for so many different age groups and in so many different ways and making it educational or making it scientific, it, like, it's so much fun. <laughs> it is, it is. Yeah, but you know, you always have to remember that the story comes first. So there are definitely yep. times where I have to let go. <laughs> Compromise. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, you know, you have to yes and a lot of this, but are there times where you're sitting there and they're, you know, throwing this idea at you and just go, I really can't work with this at all? <laughs> um, it, it has been known to happen um, where I do get really stuck. I do get really stuck. Um, in a lot of cases, what we do is I will say, sure go forth, go boldly. Um, don't try to explain it. <laughs> just don't science just let it. Let it go. Just, yeah, let, let the story happen because we're it's you're just shoehorning science where science doesn't belong here. And and typically that works. You know, that it's like, okay, yeah, let's just not explain it. Let's let's let it go. And sometimes, you know, these stories evolve. They get lots of other feedback and maybe something that started out being really grounded in science has maybe pivoted a little bit to more of an emotional story and they need it to move faster. And so the science kind of breaks with that. Um, but, yeah. you know, then we just decide to take a different approach. Um, but it does, it does happen. Um, and then there are a couple Sometimes stories. Sometimes you just don't need the science. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, and it has happened too where, um, you know, they come to me and I'm like, oh, science, like I just said, kind of science is, you know, awesome. Let's do it. I'll make sure you don't say anything wrong. Um, and they're like, no, 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 I, we want science. Let's build some science into it. It's like, okay. <laughs> I'll do my best. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, there's the range of stuff that you have to kind of throw about with, you know, your experience and your background and just trying. Like, some of it ends up being super hypothetical because we don't know enough about it yet. And yeah. that's what's really fascinating about science fiction because, like, yeah, we've got some foundation and stuff here that we do know. Mm -hmm. And all this over here is kind of nebulous, no pun intended. <laughs> and, you know, let's just see how we go with that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think, too, what's interesting is working for a franchise that's been around for over 55 years now, it's seen a lot of scientific evolution. Things like yeah. video, video chatting, right? That was unheard of, but they were doing that in the original series. And, you know, now flip yep. phones look ancient and back then that was their flip style communicators and so you know exactly. all of these uh finding out like what is possible and pushing ourselves with that i love the cyclical nature of science and invention with science fiction and i just think one inspires the other and it's just completely cyclical which is awesome 
Absolutely. And you hear so many things like with uh, all the people who work at NASA and stuff going up into space and, you know, they're such, they're, they're all little fanboys and fangirls at heart. And, you know, you've got when they sent up, uh, they grew a zinnia and everyone's going, oh my God, they grew a zinnia. They did it because of Star Trek. Yeah. And it's just things like that. We just go, yeah, they grew up with this. This is great. They're like us. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah, the astronaut Samantha Cristoforetti, she is the one who took a Voyager uniform up onto the space station with her and nice. did the live long and prosper <laughs> sign outside the view screen window. And yeah, I mean, it really does inspire people. And it's so mm. exciting to kind of see it continue. And, and especially to now, I think having a kid focused show to really target the kid audience and to get them inspired early on is really fun. It's really special. Yeah, it is. It's, it's just giving people access and, you know, allowing them to explore these things that they wouldn't otherwise be able to because, you know, ge geography or just circumstances or, you know, school just isn't equipped to give you Star Trek every day. It just doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you're moving into further into the entertainment industry but you're also getting into writing and producing I hear yeah yeah um you know for me a lot of it was as I was working in so I've been doing Star Trek now since 2019 so it's started it's a few years now and yeah. in about 2020 I was as I think a lot of people were having a little bit of a crisis at the time <laughs> I was thinking you know well what oh gosh like what do I do next because when you're an astrophysicist Working for Star Trek in Hollywood is like the job, right? <laughs> that's, that's the one that you want. And so it's not going <laughs> to last forever. So what do I do next? And how do I, you know, again, I mean, this is like a recurring theme in my life, but it's like going into it with no plan and then I'm in it. <laughs> What's the next step? And, um, and that was really a good opportunity. It was very fortuitous because right as I was having that sort of thought and and wondering like well what should I do like what do I need to set myself up for what do I need to be prepared for to kind of start working towards and what am I interested in what do I want to do um I was actually fortunate enough to be on a panel with um Narain Shakar and Andre Bermanis who were the Star Trek technical advisors back in the 80s and 90s and it was sort of like a next generation of science advisor <laughs> type thing but oh, that's uh so cool it was very cool. And, you know, their careers have gone on. You know, Narain Shankar is the showrunner of The Expanse. And Andre Bermanis is like an executive producer on Cosmos and on The Orville. And so just thinking like, okay, well, if I want to do that, like, how do I set myself <laughs> up now so that in 20 years I'm kind of doing similar stuff? And, you know, they were very gracious in giving me good kind of career advice. And a lot of it was... Like the fact that even my, so my circumstance has a lot more, it has a lot of pros and it has a lot of cons compared to what they, they were in, right? They had one show at a time. Typically there was like a couple seasons overlap, but there was only one Star Trek show going um, that they were involved in, but they had 26 episodes, you know, 24 to 26 episodes. So there could be the opportunity for them to be like, oh, science advisor, how about you try writing an episode, you know? And now just with 10 episode orders mm. for seasons, like that's just not possible. However, you know, at one time I was working on five TV shows simultaneously. And 
even though they're all Star Trek, they're all very different shows. They have different showrunners. They have different yeah. feels. Some are animated. Some are for kids. You know, some are they're all very, very different. And so it was like a fire hose of learning experiences for me and getting to see how different writers rooms are run, getting to understand the production <clears throat> process. And I just started writing and just kind of seeing if it worked, <laughs> seeing if I liked it. And it turns out I really, really do. All those years of watching film and television obsessively like, <laughs> really paid off because, because I found that <laughs> writing in a screenwriting medium is very comfortable for me. Like I understand the visual medium and how to translate that. And again, with the hundreds of pages of scripts a week that I'm reading, it's, you know, I'm immersed in that medium. So it's very easy for me to kind of be able to operate in that. And, uh, but it's a process. I mean, trying to be a writer in Hollywood is, you know, like trying to join the major leagues. Like it's not, <laughs> it's not an easy sort of career path. And um, I have a lot of privilege, but I also have a lot of learn. And I'm just kind of continuing on that path. I was very grateful. Um, you know, I now have a literary agent who can help me get, try to get staffing jobs. But you know, until then, I, I keep continuing to write. I keep working on Star Trek. And um, and then, you know, the producing side, this actually came up almost separately. But one of my best friends I met through Star Trek, uh, Mary Chifo, played Chancellor Laurel in Discovery uh, seasons one and two. And her and I met at conventions, hit it off like gangbusters. I mean, we're just like the same person. It's really, really fun. Um, but we were having a conversation uh, not even a year ago. And, you know, I was with my partner and her girlfriend. And we were kind of going for a walk and talking about kind of the struggles that we were having. You know, I'm trying to get these jobs. They're also working in the industry. They're trying to work. And then we were kind of like had this moment where we were like, we're really like smart, capable people. <laughs> and, you know, there's lots of very smart, capable people in the industry, but there's also a lot of people who aren't. <laughs> and I think yeah. we could probably do it. Like, I think we can probably figure this out and just do it ourselves. And so her girlfriend, Maddie Goff, had a script that she'd written. And we were like, well, why don't we make a short film, you know, and give them an acting gig, the two of them. I can learn how to produce. Mary and I can produce it together. And let's see if we can make it happen. And um, sure enough, what I found was as a producer actually came really naturally to me. And I really love it. And it's all about project management. Like It's all about <laughs> Funny <budgets>. that. <laughs> I know. And it was all that engineering expertise of systems engineering, right? Trying to coordinate, you know, not being afraid to just pick up a phone. And it was like, trying to do it legitimately, trying to make a real film that could really qualify for stuff that would, you know, could be shown, um, was really hard. <laughs> and, and it was, you know, <laughs> had to, we did it properly. And it was a huge learning. I mean, it was basically film school. Like we just put ourselves through film school and, um, it's great. it was a crash course. And <laughs> we learned so, I mean, we learned so much that people would ask us, you know, like, oh, who's, who's your person doing X? And we we're like, oh, I didn't know that was someone we had to hire. Like, <laughs> we should probably look into that. <laughs> and so we would go and, you know, it's, I, I hate to say like, fake it till you make it because there is some talent involved and there is some knowledge of the industry. Yep. And, but, you know, it was a lot of like, oh yeah, no, we're still looking for someone like that. Yeah, let me, uh, let me go find, <laughs> yeah. And uh, just learning how to budget all of it, learning all the permit process, you know, being in Los Angeles, trying to make a film is, is hard, <laughs> it's, you know, 
there's a lot of there's a lot of hoops you have to go through and so um you know we we did it and it has wrapped post-production we're currently sending it off to festivals and so even in just Amazing. nine months you know we we made this film it's you know just over half an hour long and it's a really beautiful it's a queer sci-fi um love story and i think it's really awesome and i'm really excited for the world to see it which it won't be able to yet because we got to get through the festival circuit first but yeah it's called uh, <laughs> it's called every morning and um yeah i was it was really nice to just i don't know you know we talked about just to kind of bring it a little bit back career wise it was like once i got into this element of writing film once I got into this element of producing and having loved film and TV for so long, that's when I kind of, it all kind of clicked. The other, the other fortuitous moment I had was um, early on when I was just thinking about getting into writing was when they told me about Star Trek Prodigy and Captain Catherine yeah. Janeway of Voyager is my girl. <laughs> she's, she's, yeah. she's my person. And um <laughs> When they told me that I would be writing lines for Captain Janeway, that, you know, just just helping like the Hot science eyes. dialogue and everything. <laughs> yeah, it was. And and that's when it clicked. It was like, no, I'm not supposed to be Captain Janeway. I'm not supposed to be Dana Scully. I'm supposed to write Dana Scully and Captain Janeway. Like, I want to write those characters that then little girls watch and then they become scientists. Because I think we have so many, so much expectations, especially if you're part of a marginalized community who's like in a field where there's not that many of you, you feel like you have to stick through it for your people. Yep. You know, it's like I have to be there <laughs> for the future versions of me to see me. But realizing, letting that go and then realizing that there's so many paths to still be that inspiration and be mm -hmm. happy is, is you know, it's, it's, it takes some mental gymnastics to get there. But, but there is a lot of opportunity. It is. It's, that's it's such a great journey, seriously. Because, yeah, you, you start to come to understand a bit better about yourself and your position and what you're there for and what you want to do and what you want to achieve. And that's growth. <laughs> yeah. Who'd have thought? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly. It, but like you said, it's about wanting it. And I think when I was a postdoc mm. and I was struggling with, you know, a lot of the, the sexism and the career issues and all of this other things, um, a lot of, you know, advice that, you know, my parents would with great intention give, you know, was like, well, stick through it, you know, just you be the one that breaks the glass ceiling. And, and I just didn't enjoy the career enough to push through it. And whereas with the yeah. film industry it has its own problems, um, but I love it and I want to push through it. And that's such a big difference. I, exactly. And it's just one of those things where it's like, well, if you don't do it, then the future generations can't. It's like, yeah, but I don't want to be that person in this particular space doing it. That's right. not for me. But, you know, exactly. in this case for you, your medium is being able to convey to a much wider audience. And it's in a space where we understand that representation in media has issues, especially for women and women in science and women in STEM. And this is your way of being able to make a difference in that area because we got to work through some of these stereotypes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I think for what I've learned too is it's as important for the general public to have the on-screen characters, but then also have that representation behind the screens. And that's what was so special about making this short film was, you know, the representation that we had on set. You know, we had our crew is 60% women, 10% non-binary. We had a number of people in the LGBTQ community. And so, and a lot of people like that just haven't 
been given those opportunities yet. So being able to carve out that space and create that environment was like incredibly special and something I'm really, really proud of. Yeah, and you should be. And it, it, yeah, it's just one of those things where <laughs> you know, people were saying that, you know, you've got these people who are creators and actors and artists and performers and they're telling them, well, you don't just have to be that. You can also make your art. You can also be the ones producing the art and creating more spaces for yourself so that that way the larger organizations, the larger machine will start to be able to do it as well. Yeah. So, yeah, it's all this grassroots kind of stuff that, you know, it's, it's a hard slog. But, you know, it makes you make spaces for yourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you know, one of my favorite quotes is from Lucille Ball, who said, like, I don't necessarily believe in luck. Luck is hard work and knowing what is an opportunity and what's not. And I think that that's absolutely true in this ethos of just, yeah, it's it's a slog. You know, people ask <laughs> so many times, um, how can I do what you do? And I'm like, first of all, I like my job. I'd like to keep my job. So I'm going <laughs> to give it to you. <laughs> and, um, and, and a this lot of mine, you, you can have a different one. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, it's you don't see people don't see the 10 years of working at museums, teaching students to working with, you know, generals and in the military and then um, and doing the slog at conventions, you know, it was like a good decade of work before these opportunities opened up to me. And it, and it was just constantly reflecting, constantly pushing, figuring out what worked, what didn't. And um, yeah, it's, it's a lot of hard work. Absolutely. So speaking of hard work, what are some of the pros and cons between, you know, your experience, because you, as you call yourself, you're a full, you know, one woman STEM panel. So yeah. it's, you know, what were some of the things that you observed being in academia and industry and getting into entertainment and you know what are some of the pros and cons of that entire journey wow that's a really good question (laughs) just a few yeah that's a great question I've never (laughs) been asked that before I'm going to be reflecting on this for days now (laughs) and I'm sure I'm going to come up with more (laughs) articulate answers as I go um you know I I would say like the pros of academia was certainly the excitement of discovering things that have never been discovered before. That that energy that you have, um, you know, it's such a, it's a relaxed environment. It has its ups and downs, but overall, after all these other fields I've worked in, academia might not feel relaxed at times, but it is much more relaxed <laughs> than a lot of other industries. And, um, and that, that creates kind of a good convivial atmosphere, right? You're kind of all in it together. And, you know, certainly going through grad school is a very good bonding experience for all of that. Um, and then the opportunity to teach. You know, I really love teaching. I love it with my whole core. And I love community college. I love teaching introductory courses. The con is that it doesn't pay. It just doesn't pay. Um, it should, you know, it absolutely should. Um, but I just, you know, when I left, I was struggling all through academia. You know, grad students, we you joke that like you just keep living as a student until you're almost 30. Um, but you have to. That's the, your only option. And then working as an adjunct, I mean, our, especially in the U.S., our adjunct professor system is so broken um, that, you know, most colleges are not replacing full-time positions they're just hiring so it's like you don't have benefits you just I mean I was working at Starbucks while I was an adjunct professor just so I could like make enough money to pay rent um because I love teaching with every ounce of my core um 
And so really financially and just the structure, I think, of research, like I mentioned earlier with the postdoc, you just have to be really mobile. And that gets harder as you start to get older and you want to be more settled down and you're going to be mobile for a long time. But, you know, now my friends, my peers who I was in graduate school with, they are starting to get permanent positions. And you do see it's like and they wanted that, you know, they pushed, they pushed, they pushed and um, put off a lot of life events to get there. And now they made it and now they're settled and they, you know, are on the tenure track at a university that they love and it's worked out. So it is possible. It's just you have to really want it. Um, with industry and engineering, I would say I did actually really enjoy working in that field. Um, the pros, like it's a lot, it's really similar to academia. There's still a lot of challenges. Um, I liked the communication. I liked the problem solving. The con is bureaucracy <laughs> and, and uh, how long always. it takes. It's always just how long, how many layers you have to get through and, um, you know, living both, both working in the corporate world as a member of a company, but then that company is lending you out on contract to work on these defense contracts, which also have their own hierarchies and their own systems. Um, but like anything, it's about building relationships and, um, and the pay is much better <laughs> for better or worse. <laughs> it's a lot better. And, um, and they are fun challenges. Um, I would say probably of all of the fields that I've been in all have very, underrepresented for you know women and uh other basically non-male genders <laughs> is probably the easiest way to put it but um but uh aerospace engineering was probably the hardest just because these are career people these are people who yep. you know both in the military and in engineering you're working with guys who were in their 60s and 70s who've been doing it their whole lives and let me tell you when dr mcdonald walks into a meeting room and they had no idea what to expect they were not expecting a woman in her early 30s covered in tattoos <laughs> like that broke yep. a lot of brains um but <laughs> like i said i still really enjoyed it and the project management i personally, I discovered I really enjoyed. And I would encourage people who are in academia and thinking of getting into industry, really look at systems engineering, because I was very well trained for that. The skill set that I built from doing a PhD and doing my own independent research set me up very well to be a successful systems engineer. And I had no idea. <laughs> it took someone to look at my resume and be like, you'd be a really good systems engineer. I'm like, oh my God, yeah, that's really natural for me. Um, you know, and then the entertainment industry, it's the job insecurity is the toughest part. It's just the toughest part, you know, stuff there's been things in the news lately, you know, with like the Batgirl just getting nixed, just getting shelved. And then with the HBO Max and Warner Brothers merger and them just pulling shows that like the showrunners yeah. didn't even know they were disappearing. Um, it's a brutal business. Um, mm -hmm. But for me, it's very rewarding. The process of storytelling, being able to put stories out into the world and create like an emotional impact. I got really, it's like I have these different emotional attachments to every single show that I work on. And, um, and I have really enjoyed working on Strange New Worlds. Like Strange New Worlds has been a very fun show to work on. Um, and I get to like write science lines for Spock, which is like huge, right? But I got- It is, it's massive. It is, but I got- <laughs> unexpectedly emotional when I was watching that show air because I hadn't worked on that first season for a while and I it hadn't you know I hadn't seen the final product and I was like this is just a good 
TV show and I got to work like and my name is on the credits like that's really special. And one of the best things that, you know, my husband and I now we started implementing on the advice, which honestly, this applies to all careers is to really genuinely celebrate the little wins, like just the little things that you can be like, That's, this was a good day. Like, let's go out to dinner. <laughs> you know, like, Let's celebrate this. Or, you know, so much stuff like you do get opportunities, you get really big interviews. I always call them Hollywood days where you get to go to like a major studio and interview with a showrunner. Like, that's what people think I do all day, every day. And so that's <laughs> when I get to have a Hollywood day, I want to celebrate that because I don't get those that often. And so it's really... Yeah. And looking back, like, I wish that I had implemented that in academia, in engineering, where it's like, for example, if I gave a briefing to a two-star general, like, that's a big deal. Like, I that's should, you should still celebrate that. Or, you know, submitting your paper to a journal. Like, you just finished a paper. Like, you should go celebrate that. And it's just because we don't have this external motivation <laughs> that we, you know, we're looking for the big win, the like the Nobel Prize ceremony, the big recognition. Yep. Um, that that's one in a million. And so just teaching yourself how to celebrate the little things, I think is the most important. And it's certainly what keeps me going. Yeah, that that's definitely an important thing. And you, know, you, you forget because you're so busy trying to find your next tiny little milestone that you forget yeah. to celebrate the ones that you've already had. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But it's good that, you know, it, it's such a good mindset to have as well. Because every time a celebrator wins, like endorphin. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it motivates you to do the next one. It's like, oh, I can do this again. This is this is a repeatable. I'm a, I'm a little lab rat. This is a repeatable experience. Yeah. I can totally do this again. <laughs> yeah. Look what I was capable of doing. Yeah. And and um, you know, I think it's it's so funny. I think what I've discovered is working in all these different industries, you start to see what all the misconceptions of the different industries are, like what people mm. think academics do every single day, what people <laughs> think engineers do every single day, what people think Hollywood writers do every single day. But none of it's true. Like none of it's true. Everyone's <laughs> It's all wrong. Like all your misconceptions about it's all, all of this emails is super wrong. and empty word documents. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only unifying factor. <laughs> <laughs> all these industries emails and meetings and meetings that should have just been emails <laughs> <laughs> absolutely <laughs> it's like if, if it's like, I, I do exactly what a writer does i sit there and stare at an empty document this is great <laughs> living the dream <laughs> so much, <laughs> there's so much disconnect i think of what what we do and what we are um you know, what we perceive other people to do. And it wasn't even really until I got into working in television that I understood kind of the role of the showrunner and the role and how how few people are, you know, people think like these, these are like huge budgets and everyone's super rich and they're, you know, doing all this hard, insane work. Um, and it's really just like a small group of really dedicated people trying to get a really good show made. And it's it's very easy to make fun of movies or TV shows that don't quite hit the mark. But no one's trying to make a bad TV show, right? <laughs> like, people are trying to make good things. And, um, and so learning that has kind of softened me a little bit of just realizing that um, it's all it's really hard. It's really hard work and it's very few dedicated people who are doing it. Absolutely. And it does take, it takes a lot of dedication and 
a lot of focus because, you know, you know that you're, you know, I say this a lot, there's a lot of rejection economy. And, yeah. you know, in all of these areas, whether you're a creator, whether you're an academic, whether, you know, you're in entertainment, it's a rejection economy. Like the odds of people actually being successful in the way that you see other people being successful is fairly rare. And getting yeah. to that position where you're, you know, getting a couple of hits, it, it's hard. And you have to, as you said, want it in order to, you know, be able to persevere and to push through and to make it through those difficult days. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, the economy of rejection, I think, is a really good way of putting it. And I think the only the only time I didn't experience that was working in aerospace. You're still on contracts. Um, but one of the piece of advice that I always got was that look like things are volatile, different companies get different contracts, things move around. But you like as a systems engineering advisor, you're either going to stay with your company or you're going to stay on the contract. You know, they they're going to find a way to keep you if they want and you're going to be able to move wherever you want. And having the dual umbrellas kind of looking out for you of the government in industry that you're in as well as the company that you work for, that's like the most secure I've ever felt. Otherwise, like you're absolutely right. It's an economy of rejection. And um, I think there are different ways of coping with it, right? Uh, for me, with the writing aspect, um, I started telling myself to give myself a goal of getting like 50 rejections a year. I'm going to get rejected <laughs> X amount of times, right? Which means I have to keep sending it out. I have to keep doing it because I've, I've yep. set a goal for myself. And yes, I'm going to get rejected. But then when I get rejected, I'm like, ooh, another one. Okay. Got another two. Exactly. And um, so finding those little ways to cope with the rejection. But, uh, you know, as we've mentioned before, um, it just has to be in a field that you want. Um, that rejection in academia did not motivate me. It just broke me. <laughs> like it was yeah. just, it was just tough. Um, I really, and I think too, something we haven't really talked about yet, but um, is the idea of mentorship, you know, and the people who kind of help mm -hmm. carry you through these. And in academia, I really just didn't have much of a mentor. You know, I never really found mm -hmm. a person that I saw myself as, that I could see my personality, see the type of lifestyle that I wanted um, in someone else. I just didn't. And that made it really difficult. Um, whereas for me in the entertainment industry, it's like, I do see women where I'm like that. Yes, I can see myself doing that stuff. And so having a good mentorship and support network, I think is really, really crucial as well. Absolutely. So with these mentors, like how, how do you approach them and say, I want to be you? <laughs> <laughs> Um, sometimes I have just said that, but it's about reading the room. <laughs> you can't approach them as strangers to have that conversation. But, you know, if it, if it's someone like I've had a chance to interact with and I have had a good rapport, um, being able and being confident enough to to go up to them and just say, like, look, can we just can we just get a coffee sometime? Like, I'd really like to pick your brain about your career. You know, that that's kind of how I've phrased it in the past. And it's been, you know, like I said, the the guys who were science advisors in the 90s, I, I approached them in a similar way after this panel. They knew who I was by that point, you know, but I just said, look, like I'm I like where your guys career have gone. Um, I'd really like to just kind of pick your brain about what you think would be beneficial for me 
um, to work on and to do. And and being very clear, like you're not asking for a um, an opportunity. I'm not going to them being like, and you should staff me on your show. But rather, I'm coming to them in earnest <laughs> to try to learn something from them and to try to find a, a connection. And, um, and And that's great. You know, I think the biggest thing is just being able to be personable and be easy to work with, be a positive force in a room. Um, and it makes people want to pick up the phone and call you. But yeah, these yeah. finding finding mentors and finding people. Um, I think it's it's just important to not be afraid to ask if you can grab a cup of coffee and pick their brain about a career and go into it yeah. really just wanting to learn, not looking for to become the teacher's pet, you know, <laughs> and, um, but really just being like, I, I just want some advice, um, you know, and coming prepared with questions and being professional about it and not being overwhelming and then being able to follow up kind of every every like six months you know and just send an email and just say like hey this is where I'm at in my career you know this advice that you gave me I've been working on and it's been going really well and sometimes that's all you need to say and it's just keeping those connections um you know a lot of people you know myself included want to mentor those those next generations we we love doing that uh, we know what we struggled with and what we haven't and like I said, something I'm passionate about is helping people who want to get out of academia but don't necessarily see a path for that is something I'm really passionate about. And I'm always happy to, like, connect with people and answer questions and do things like this. Right. Because um, absolutely. It's, it's it's really important. It is. And, you know, you you are completely embodying the whole idea that academia is portable because a lot of people think that, you know, I'm in academia. I can't or. Other people in industry look at people in academia and go, well, I can't really hire you. You don't really have any skills. It's yeah. like, well, research, project management, budgeting, teams, you know, it, it's all the stuff and learning how to frame it in a way that is in the language of industry or wherever it is that you're headed next. Because yeah. all the skills are totally portable. <laughs> totally. And I mean, gosh, you know, I have a PhD in theoretical astrophysics. Like it is not the <laughs> most portable career uh, field to have studied. <laughs> But, and like I said, I'm very grateful for that one person who actually read my academic CV and realized what those skill sets were, having, you know, worked with people from the industry, from academia before. Um, and yeah, I mean, even I doubted it, but realizing, and I think too, especially after doing a PhD, you can pick stuff up super fast. You know, the ability to walk mm. into a room and just be like, all right, what do I need to know to learn this? How do I pick this up? How do I do my homework? I'm really good at homework. <laughs> it's like, I will learn this really fast. <laughs> and, um, and the other thing I've learned too after moving around and starting so many careers over again is not being too hard on yourself of not knowing everything off the gate. And as someone who has hired people, you know, as a manager, I've reflected back and been like, you know what? I didn't really expect them to perform much for that first month. You know, I'm not, the expectations are not high in a good way. They, you're expected to take your time and get up to speed. And so just finding that little language, like I said, like the systems engineering, understanding how to translate what your skill set and your research is into industry terminology the skill sets there. I mean, I think most people in academia could walk and do a job like I did and pick it up immediately um, and find that it's actually easier than academia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it, it's just, 
understanding what your skill set is and how it's translatable because often some like you might need as you did have someone else have to tell you this is how you translate because you're so stuck in your own little space in your own little world and you can't see what you are actually capable of because you've been doing it for so long and it just makes sense to you and you can't tell anyone else (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's all it's all slowly built on itself over the years and you haven't taken that reflection and been like wait a minute what am I doing again like how do I explain this to other people yeah it's it's tough exactly um yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah well so let's see we're waiting for time all right probably a good time to start moving on to some of those I call them soft questions I've been told not to that's fine (laughs) (laughs) yep so first question what hobby or interest do you have that is most unrelated to your field of work could be interesting for you there's a lot of breadth here (laughs) yeah no kidding um I used to be a dancer um so I still do that occasionally uh was a tap dancer and an Irish step dancer um but the hobbies I really enjoy are cooking I really really enjoy cooking um that's getting a good hard recipe Baking as well, but I think really cooking a nice meal is is really fun for me. Uh, my ex husband was a chef, so I learned a lot from him. And then when we divorced, I was like, "Now I get to be in the kitchen, <laughs> and I'm going to teach myself how to do this stuff." And so I really, awesome. really enjoy cooking. That's awesome. So, what's the most challenging thing you cooked in? <laughs> Ooh, um, I got this book called Thai Street Food, which was like a part travel Ooh. book, part um recipe book but it was like the genuine recipes and I had to go and like source these ing- I mean it took a day and a half to find all the ingredients for these meals that I was making I made like an authentic cow soy um and nice. yeah that that was amazing because that's one of my favorite Thai dishes and that's really hard to find and um so when I kind of made that myself it was it was a process but it was really fun yeah <laughs> absolutely it's certainly like some dishes where the hardest part is actually just sourcing the ingredients because yeah. you just can't get them. I Especially know. if, you know, Asian ingredients, it's just really crazy. And, you know, it, it's getting better. Here at least it's getting a bit better. But there's still yeah. some things where it's like we have to substitute. It tastes nothing like what it's supposed to. I know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, and that's when you close, give yourself the no, challenge not, to not like go and actually find the, the authentic ingredients. <laughs> I know. Oh, so hard. But it has to, like, I can imagine that it's getting better in LA, though. Like, there's, yes. there's a lot of stuff going on there. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Like, yeah, it's, I, I did finally find somewhere that I can get cow soy and I don't have to try to make it myself every time. But, um, but it's fun. It's a good challenge. Oh, excellent. I, I love doing that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Absolutely. Um, it's just, yeah, it's, uh, what I really enjoy doing is making dishes that, um, I've never had before that just look good in the book and so it's like it's a total experiment it's a total experiment at that point and um yeah see if I like it you know and it's just for me it's a really relaxing way to sort of like spend a you know a Saturday night is like I'm just gonna unplug I'm off my screen you know other than looking up the recipe or like how to prepare this one ingredient um but I'm kind of just unplugged and in my little element so it's really fun and it tastes nice. Good. You get to eat it. That's end very of it. cool. <laughs> yeah, that that is a true reward. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um. So I was reading Dracula Daily for a while, and yeah, they they were getting super. Like, Tumblr was getting super into Prepper Crash, and that was hilarious. Like just how obsessed they were with that dish. 
I went, okay, fine. Let's, let's give that a go. Found a recipe for paprikash, made it. Went, this tastes like goulash. Looked it up. Oh, it is a goulash. Right. Okay. <laughs> That's new. <laughs> That's amazing. I love it. It's like, oh, not as fast. Yeah. It's like, okay, that, that wasn't as exciting as I thought it would be, but it was still delicious. <laughs> <laughs> but it was good. I bet it was good. <laughs> it was. <laughs> That's awesome. Yep. And which childhood book holds the strongest memories for you? Ooh, um, Jane Eyre. So this, that's more of like kind of a teenage Aaron. Um, but for me, Jane Eyre was the first book that I read where I felt a kinship with the character and with the voice of the writer. So that was like the first time where I... And especially for a book that, you know, was written in the 1800s, was it 18? Yeah, 1800s, that um, to have that level of like similarity with a character blew my mind. It's still like, it's still my favorite book. Um, but it, it just, yeah, for being sort of a young reader and reading, you know, I'd read sort of older books and, and I had enjoyed them, um, sort of that classic Victorian type literature, Jane Austen books and stuff. But it wasn't until I read Jane Eyre where I was like, oh, my God, like, I feel like I'm friends with this writer. <laughs> this is like talking to a girlfriend and I love it. <laughs> yeah, that was really special for me. Yeah, it, it's it's great when you just find that book or find that character where you just connect with them. And even more surprising, as you said, when, you know, it's centuries apart, you just think, huh, we're the same. <laughs> we're all just the same. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And lastly, what advice would you give someone who wants to do what you do or what advice should they ignore? And I know we've covered this a little bit because like, nope, my job, thanks. <laughs> but, you yeah. know, let's run with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I alluded to this a little bit, but I think the best thing I did for my career was work at a science museum. And that's something that people can volunteer to do, even if it's just a science center, like a local town science center. Um, that is where I honed my science communication skills and it has benefited all of my careers. It has benefited me professionally, like across the board. I just, I can't endorse enough as a scientist, the value of interacting with the public, finding that common ground, finding ways to explain things to people in different ways. And especially learning how to say, I don't know. <laughs> when you're the expert on deck yeah. and someone's come to you with a question, you feel like you should know the answer. Having the confidence and the authority to be like, you know what? I actually don't. That's a great question. I don't know the answer to that. Let's look it up together. Because you at least have the skill set to know what to look up and then how to translate the answer to people. And they appreciate that effort. So, um, yeah, I would say the one advice, especially for scientists who want to get into the entertainment industry is just work on your science communication. It's, it is going to help immensely. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, over here, there used to be, I don't know if it still exists or if there's a new format of it, but there used to be a thing called Science Circus. So a lot of scientists, academias, they used to go, academics, they would kind of get either invited or they apply for this program. And they end up being part of this traveling science circus where they, you know, go out to regional areas and teach kids all the flashy science and some of the non-flashy science and getting to kind of learn how to communicate the fun stuff of all of these fields to these kids who others wouldn't get access to this kind of thing. And, you know, it's not unusual for a lot of science types 
and STEM people to have dabbled in arts and theatre and comms. And it's it's just one of those things where you do need to kind of explore that and explore the way you communicate and not just for yourself, but being creative with your hard sciencey work and yeah. making it more interesting and more fun for the people who don't see the hard science part of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I um I took after my PhD when I was a postdoc student, I was interviewed for a like a sort of web docu series and it was on the stuff I like talking about science fiction and the science behind it. And that video, when that video came out, that was the first time I'd ever done something like that, being a talking head on a sort of docu-series. Uh, I was like, oh, that girl has not talked to a non-scientist in like years. <laughs> like I just, it was, you could read it all over me that I was uncomfortable. I didn't know how to explain stuff very clearly. And, um, and I actually signed up. I was just like, I got to get out. Like I used to be a dancer. That's harder to do, get back into as an adult. Um, so I took an improv class. I took acting classes. And it was more just as a hobby. And, you know, I think people have probably heard that before as scientists. It's like, look, if you want to do this, taking improv or an acting class is really beneficial. Just remember that if you take an improv class, you don't actually have to perform improv. It's a class. You're learning how to do it. <laughs> so I think so many people hear that. They're just like, oh, there's no way. Like, I'm, there's no way I can do that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's not. It's, it's that you're learning how to do that. And I think that that, that is really also builds a really good skill set. It builds a really good skill set for communication it does and you know people you know it is one of the things that I feel I need to do just because comms isn't something that I've been doing until recently so it, it, yeah it's just one of those things where people come up to you they ask you questions like hmm where do I go with this and it, it's learning to you know reframe your mind for you know thinking on your feet being able to answer not exactly spilling bs while you're at it but just mm -hmm. trying to you know frame what you want to say and trying to think about how you can lead onto something else or yes and it. And those are really good skills just in general life. <laughs> yeah, it really is. I found I I still I've only performed improv like twice and that was favors for a friend. <laughs> um, but I, I did find like the skill sets that I built from improv classes where you're doing exercises to free your mind to just impulse make decisions and just be a little less analytical and to be a little like just more impulsive um hugely therapeutic like it was really it was a really great experience because you know as scientists especially you know we overthink we analyze we pick apart everything we're very careful with how we yeah. phrase stuff and improv really taught me just no nah, just wing it it'll be fine you know the stuff you'll get there eventually <laughs> like <laughs> exactly yeah yep absolutely and yeah, it's, it's funny because I'm okay with impromptu if I am so well prepared that, you know, it, I, c I can just impromptu it. But if I have to do written or formalized speeches, it's like, nah, can't do it. Gonna forget, <laughs> lose my train of thought. I gotta yeah. make it up. <laughs> yeah, totally. I get that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And what advice should they ignore? Ooh, um, that it's easy. <laughs> I think, uh. <laughs> Being a science advisor is one of those jobs a lot of people think that they could do because they recognize when the science is wrong or they have better ideas to make it right. Um, it's um, it's a hard. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I think it's a hard job. It's a hard job, and it's um, it's it requires a lot of 
uh, diplomacy and tactics um, to try to work with people, to try to tell a good story. Um, and a lot of people walk into this and they're like, I can do what you do. <laughs> and, and maybe they could. I don't want to say that I'm like some special, you know, rainbow that is just perfect and no one else can do this. But, you know, but it is a hard, it's a hard skill set. And um, like I said, it, it requires a lot of reading. It requires a lot of reading. And my, uh, yeah, my husband, you know, he said quite a couple times, he's like, I could not, I could not do your job because the amount of times <laughs> I'm just sitting there reading page after page Boring. after page after page. And yeah, it's, um, you, you really have to love it, but, um, but it's worth it. I, you know, I don't, I don't think there's any necessarily like bad advice for getting into this industry. I think it's just understanding diplomacy and how to network. Uh, the worst thing you can do is really just be a difficult person, you know, a difficult person to get a hold of, a difficult person to have a conversation with. That's what's going to make it hard to succeed. Um, if you can tick those boxes, then it's pretty good. Awesome. That's pretty good advice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you so much, Erin, for speaking with me today. It has been absolutely amazing listening to your absolute ride of a journey and, you know, just understanding the way that you kind of approached all of these junctures in your career path and it's it's wonderful that you were just prepared to you know give it a go it's like mm, it, it is a bit of fake it till you make it but it's still going in going I know it's going to be hard but let's give it a shot anyway and yeah. that is such an important thing to be able to do especially since you've done it three times <laughs> yeah exactly it's the advice from Carrie Fisher which is just stay afraid but do it anyway exactly that's yeah, amazing advice so if people would like to get to know more about your work and what you do, where can they go? Um, so I'm most active online on Twitter. You can find me at Dr. Erin Mack, D-R-E-R-I-N-M-A-C. And I have the same handle on Twitch and a brand new TikTok page that's starting to slowly oh, nice. populated with information. Um, so those are the same handles. And then I also have a Audible original series called The Science of Sci-Fi. Uh, written awesome. and narrated by myself and then I have a kids baby board book coming out in October called Star Trek my first book of space <laughs> so oh, amazing. keep an eye out for You're that as well. everything <laughs> <laughs> I know thanks <laughs> that's so cool okay well thank you again so much this has been absolutely amazing speaking with you and I hope you have an amazing rest of your evening thank you yes have a good one I love speaking with Erin about her colourful career path and how she found her medium for inspiring others the way that she was once inspired. It was also fascinating to hear about her observations of working in these three areas and what she has learned along the way. To learn more about Erin and what we discuss on the show, or to connect with us, please visit the Steampowered website at steampoweredshow.com. You can also find Erin on Twitter at Dr. Erin Mack, that's D-R-E-R-I-N-M-A-C, and more about her other works on her website, erinpmcdonald.com the links for which will be in the show notes. If you enjoyed this conversation, please let me know. Subscribe to the show, leave us a rating, and share this with your geeky or geek curious friends. You can also support Steam Powered on Patreon and Ko-fi under Steam Powered Show, the links for which will also be in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.